I'm interested in how a musical object, which is the same, broadly speaking, can be both itself and being transformed by the context of reception. And that's a very complicated dynamics because when you have a general ideas about what the meaning of the symphony is, perhaps heroism of Beethoven music is the topos more usually used to describe that, that is something that can cut both ways. I mean, there was a consensus on the fact that individual heroism was a value, right? That was something which was common to Nazis and to uh, people who fought against them. And so that's a level of the thing. But then heroism for what? Of course, it's definitely not the same if you are claiming your loyalty to Hitler than if you are claiming your loyalty to uh, universalist ideals. And uh, how does it play in the political role of the concept? That's something that depends on understanding the possible emotional and behavioral attitudes that the people in the audience are taking. And that's, uh, that's a tricky thing. is claiming Beethoven. We portrait a group of international musicologists and historians examining aspects of propaganda, collaboration, resistance, persecution and exile to learn about the distortion of historiography and the relevance for our own present times. This podcast by Michael Custodis and his team at the University of Münster is related to the project the role of Beethoven and his music in Nazi-occupied European countries. It's my pleasure to welcome Esteban Buch for our podcast here. He is professor of music history at the EHES in Paris, and not only a specialist for the relationships between music and politics in the 20th century, but especially focusing a lot of Beethoven research. Of course, we know he has written a famous book about the reception of the Ninth Symphony. And recently, he just published a chapter in a very impressive uh, proceedings about Leo Schrade, and Beethoven in exile. So it's our pleasure now to have you here, Esteban, to talk with us. Thank you very much, Michael, for the invitation. First to join the project and uh, now to speak a little bit about our common research interests. Yes. And first of all, I would like to ask you, how would you Sama, estimate the historic relevance of the questions we are raising? Because you already have, with many other colleagues, your own history of researching about those topics. So now focusing Nazi-occupied countries and bringing that together with Beethoven, where are some starting points for you and where are the connections with knowledge we already have? I would say that uh, the reason we might be collectively interested in this topic is both because, of course, uh, the impact of uh, Nazi ideology and World War II as a whole on the whole course of human history is so, so important and so uh, concerning that, uh, in a way, the story is never over as far as research is concerned. I mean, uh, we, we still have uh, many things we don't know about uh, how people could survive this period. I mean, psychically, of course, physically, and uh, but I'm thinking about the state of mind in which millions and millions of people around the world, and especially in Europe, of course, endured uh, Nazi rule and Nazi oppression. And uh, there is a question there. I think the reason we are always coming back to that is because there is a kind of mystery in how people could just uh, endure 
the situation. And cultural history uh, introduces uh, a register of answers to that. I mean, the role of culture uh, was not on the top list of the historian's interest, as we were discussing a few moments ago. But uh, the more we go and the more I think there is a common awareness of the fact that uh, Culture is a way in which people can relate emotionally with. We are used now to understand ideological contents of uh, works. I mean, uh, when you have propaganda, when we have classical objects which are defined by text, we know how to read them, literally read them, but how it can modify states of mind, states of uh, dispositions to act. I think that that's uh, a kind of yeah scientific uh, enigma. And uh, I think that research, empirical research, very focused on what happened in particular situations, particular cities, in particular people, can help us to understand that. And I think it's very, very important to understand that because, of course, we are dealing here with events which happened many decades ago, but the story is not over. I mean, the story of how the arts in general and cultural productions at large can impact a population which is under the stress of an occupation or a state of war. Um, surely, I would like to know how, because you are for quite some years now in the business of this uh, research, and each generation has different approaches, different knowledge, different experiences. And at the same time, I keep learning with this project very much with all the influences and uh, details from the other European countries. And at the same time, during, let's say, the last 10 to 15 years, the atmosphere in Europe and certain parts of politics changed very much with this very strong nationalists movement. So somehow the atmosphere as much as we connect now internationally to research those topics together, the nationalist approach to culture, to claim culture back in a nationalist setting changed dramatically as we know. So how would you relate your research and our research here somehow in um, the traditions in this case of musicology, but also of cultural history, because researching those topics in the 70s and in the 80s or in the 2000s, of course, changed. Is that something of relevance to you? Yes, absolutely. But uh, you are describing in a very short sentence a uh, 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 very complicated scene, because yes. my would answer yes. that, uh, yes, you have uh, on one side the reinforcement or the coming back of some kind of nationalist thought, especially in the public sphere. We are talking about politics at large rather than what happens in the academia. So definitely there is uh, this feeling of déjà vu uh, because of nationalist paradigms being applied to politics and uh, um, on one side on the other side I think that uh, we have I hope we have left uh, behind the nationalist epistemological paradigm I mean by that that uh, for decades and even for centuries uh, most uh, music historians have worked with a focus on their nation and uh, what happened beyond the borders was eventually a curiosity or a complement or something which uh, 
was basically uh, not on the same level of importance that what happened or was happening in their own countries. And I think that now we are reasoning in a different way and we are more focusing on transnational phenomena and we are more aware that the fact of that nationality thought itself was and is a transnational ideology and a transnational production. And this is why uh, collaboration between historians who speak uh, different languages and which uh, who are based in different countries has become more and more the normal thing to do, even if we don't have the resources or the... But I mean, from a scientific point of view, it's obvious that we should talk <laughs> with other people working on different national scenarios. On the other hand, I mean, still another transformation, I think, which is very important, is that we are dealing with a period, namely the 40s, in which the hierarchy between uh, classical music and the other musical genres and musical productions went without saying. I mean, there was no argument really at the time. Of course, there were many people who said, well, I'd rather listen to jazz or to whatever than to Beethoven, but still the hierarchy was a consensual one, I think. And now we are in a very different situation because for maybe 20 years or more, the very notion of what a canon is has dominated the, the, the discussion, the conversation. And so now I think we should be more and more aware when we are dealing with a, a historical figure like Beethoven that never ever it went without problems to claim that Beethoven music was universal, even if for centuries that was the common sense notion of why Beethoven was important in the first place. And now we are much more aware, I think, of the ethnocentrism embedded in that claim. And when you deconstruct Beethoven inheritance, I mean intellectual inheritance from that point of view, I mean it's a kind of vertiginous opening of the field. But, uh, so when we look at the 40s and especially with the Nazi policies in occupied countries in which it was universality plus nationalism, I mean German nationalism accumulated together, that was a kind of mega structure, ideological speaking, which uh, now is all subjected to an interrogation by scholars, I think. Yeah, sure. As you have a very broad perspective on international musicology, but especially also on French, did it become easier during the last decades to research such topics? Because my own perspective from German musicology is that nowadays um, having those complicated and contradictive questions of focusing music in ideological and especially in dictatorships, some circumstances, it's not risky, for example, for a young scholar's career anymore, or it's not such a scandal topic anymore as it was uh, a couple of decades ago. At the same time, I don't know about the discussion recently in France. Here it was uh, with the outbreak of the Russian war in the Ukraine that all of a sudden this complex situation of music and politics was discussed immediately again. Let's na name Gergiev, Netrebko and others. Uh, how do we would deal with those issues? So there was again a public deba debate and I was a little bit surprised. I didn't expect it to have such a popular everyday impact. So how would you somehow comment on the situation in France, is it more uncomplicated or just different nowadays to research about those topics than like, let's say, 10 and 20 and 30 years ago when there was a different generation, for example, at 
universities still in charge? My answer would be, well, definitely, yes, there has been a change. I mean, since I started to work on Beethoven's reception uh, until now, I think there definitely has a, there is a clear transformation of the field, which means that politics, which was quite a curiosity, let's say, for musicologists in uh, a generation before, now has become, I wouldn't say mainstream, but uh, in a way it's much more common, and that is uh, true for Germany, as far as I can tell, uh, for the English-speaking academia, and also in France. My perspective is perhaps a little um, peculiar in the sense that I work and I had made my write my written my dissertation in the same institution. I my my institution is the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, which means social sciences as a center of the. Thing. The école was a kind of laboratory without uh, exaggerating, but I think of, of that kind of integration between musicology and the social sciences. And um, now I think that's much more common. And I think that the, the resonances you were mentioning with the war in Ukraine, and it's, there has been a, a parallel evolution in a way uh, between what happened in the academia in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, the leaving aside the, the, the canon canonical view of the canon, uh, as it could be described 50 years ago, let's say, uh, and the erosion of classical music as the dominating uh, paradigm of what good music is, great music, the art with a, a capital and so on. And so I think that, uh, well, the, the crisis in Ukraine uh, now comes at a moment in which there are no certitudes about that, but we are collectively aware that politics matter for the arts, and the arts especially matter for politics. That's a consensual perception, I think. I yeah. don't know what your view of that is, because it's very debatable. But um, I always had somewhat a sense for the inside view on music has a certain impact, because there are certain things you can only describe with Uh, certain methods of musicological analysis at the same time it, but that's just my opinion music always happens in a certain time so it's not only the music but somehow music as a social phenomenon with a certain audience with a certain debate with a certain history in the back and always a certain lack of knowledge or let's say separate knowledge involved um, that for the experts they refer to different things and they would start to debate at different things or would avoid debate at certain other parts uh, while the public first of all goes to concerts because they enjoy music which is quite appropriate and that's the joy of music. So for me, usually music doesn't happen outside of a political context, not only speaking about party politics, but in a sociological political sense. So I'm just trying to follow and to understand why at certain times certain debates all of a sudden happen, because we as, let's say, insiders who have the liberty to uh, spend much of our time with music in a very broad, broad setting, we could have expected certain other debates to start. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. So I was a little bit surprised why the war in Ukraine, and especially Putin's claim on def or the right to define what is Russian and not combined with this military aggression had such could cause such a public debate because if you followed Putin's political matters and agenda over the last years with occupying the Krim and even before 
uh, Georgia and other parts of uh, South, let's say, let's call it East, uh, Southeast, but mostly Eastern Europe, like historians weren't really surprised. So I try to understand, maybe it had something to also to do with the pandemic, because all related to cultural matters and professions learned that they were unrelevant uh, in a system as long as you're not involved with virology and other things. And all of a sudden there was a war, a brutal aggression against a European country. And one of the primary fields of discussion all of a sudden was music. And that was to me not really a surprise. At the same time, having such a strong, let's say, impact. I was a little bit surprised how fiercely, again, such a debate was how they had that. And that somehow, I guess you would agree to us, it's somehow old questions reappearing in a new situation. So that's somehow something I try to understand. So it's more like an open response. To me, it matters very much. Yes, I agree with that, uh, with the old, uh, the, the old in the new. Putin's imperialism sounds uh, anachronistic in many ways, and still, as we were saying at the beginning, it's here and now, and it's uh, a threat which em encompasses more than, of course, uh, Ukraine integrity and um, local, I mean, regional uh, issues, because it addresses well, the whole uh, geopolitical order, but I'm no expert of that, of course. Uh, but I would make a difference anyway between uh, the debates around Gergiev, for instance, or Netrebko, or some very preeminent figures who were objected because of their personal loyalties to Putin rather than... Repertoire? I mean, well, yeah, well, the repertoire is the, the important thing, I would say. Yes. Well, important in the, in the sense that there you have a debate. Yes. And there is no debate around Gergiev's loyalty towards Putin and the fact that that's part of the logic of yes. being against Putin, that uh, he has some consequences for that. But the repertoire is the issue. I mean, the very notion of whether Russian music is, in a way, a vector of Putin's imperialism, which is a more uh, tricky thing to do. And um, I don't know, I, I don't have a very clear, definite view, but my instinct would be, well, that's perhaps not the best thing to, to do, to, to, to put a kind of censorship on the Russian repertoire, because it confirms Putin's discourse in the first place, and yes. the, the notion that Russian culture is aggressed and all this paranoiac view of the situation. Yes, I, I would agree. And um, first of all, just recently there was a performance of Pussy Riot in Münster. And that was very interesting to see because if there are anything at all, they're a very distinct opposition against Putin. But of course, they also claim the rights that we are also Russia. So, um, and uh, the German constitution clearly says no one should be persecuted anything else because of his upbringing or his nationality. So um, banning just anything because it's Russian, that would just follow somehow uh, or respond to uh, Putin's uh, approach. Because he said, I define what Russian is. And um, discussing the repertoire is even more interesting, dealing with certain very prominent musicians. And I think this, of course, somehow brings us also back to the question of Beethoven, because Tchaikovsky didn't live when the Russian Revolution broke out, when socialism started, when especially Stalin established this very uh, strong dictatorship. Different is Shostakovich. So discussing Shostakovich gets very complicated because either you have to know very many details and uh, often those debates somehow answer 
one de detail with another detail. So it's uh, just something like uh, it levels itself out and you don't get somewhere with such a discussion. Or people try to get away from the biography of the artist and get back into the music. So where is, where is the ideology in the music? And that gets very complicated, but at the same time, avoiding the debate doesn't help either. Let's, let's take the examples that this recent publication uh, from Anna Langenbruch, Beate, Angelika Kraus and Christine Siegert, Beethoven's, I would translate, a legacy, Beethoven in exile, also includes Toscanini and Bruno Walter in exile conducting, for example, Beethoven, because they refused Hitler's claim to say everything German belongs to us. Some of this is not really a similar situation because, of course, Beethoven lived in different times. But at the same time, it's uh, the question of who has the right to speak on behalf of cultural history. And now we're back into our own times because we would say, and this brings me back to your very interesting own perspective, because you often start with those historical biographical contradictions. Uh, one of your examples is, of course, Leo Schrade. Within a couple of years, in 73-78, still somehow presenting with his Beethoven approach a good example of good German, and this time it's Germanic musicology, and a few years later presenting his book about the Beethoven reception in France, now written or rewritten, translated in the American exile, and now somehow defending Beethoven against Vichy and Hitler, which is a very interesting starting because you make very clear that this is somehow contradictive. So coming back to your own contribution to our project, maybe you would like to summarize uh, your starting points because I guess it is somewhere between your huge book about the Ninth Symphony and those new points of reference you would like to follow with Schrade and exile and somehow this exiled view on, in this case, particularly France and Germany. Did I understand that correctly? Maybe you want to present that a little bit to our listeners because uh, to them, of course, it's very new. I'm still fascinated by what Schrade did, actually, because as you reminded, uh, he first wrote a piece on Beethoven's French reception while being a professor in Bonn in 1937. And that was very much coherent with the perspective of the Nazified Academy. And uh, even uh, it was somehow an example in the views of some people of what the German Academy should do about uh, Beethoven's reception. And then as you you said he went to America and so he translated but he also adapted the text it wasn't just a translation it was a modification which actually changed the political context of what he meant because he associated in a very strong way uh, the French what he calls the French image of Beethoven to the Dreyfus affair and to French republicanism which was of course anathema to the Nazis so uh, he wasn't ambivalent he wasn't ambiguous but the point which is actually most interesting for me is the fact that the experience Beethoven's music could provide to the listeners informed by Schrade's comment. And this is a very important point because we, you, you never have musical works acting on people without the mediation of some discourse, some paratext. And uh, this is where the responsibility of critics and of historians and conductors, for instance, when they say things about uh, the works is, is, is considerable because the listening experience itself is only 
half of the of the picture and so the the ways in which this emotional experience can be transposed to the ideological uh, level depends very much on what you read what you're told you should understand of what is going on in your ears so to speak and so he did both things uh, i mean leo schade did both things he provided the listeners of beethoven's music informed by his research with something which was basically stable from germany to the united states and with a correction of how that could be related to the present, right? And uh, what I'm interested in in, in, in understanding uh, with our project is this, exactly this mechanism, why you still have things that are the same. Uh, I mean, uh, the, a symphony by Beethoven played uh, by a, a German orchestra in tour in an occupied country is still the same music we can say than when you play it in a context which is not uh, so no, not problematic but you have other factors which are producing an effect on the understanding of the people and that's why uh, the, the the nazi uh, delegates would be were interested in producing concerts in the first place if there was a, wasn't a, a, an ideological gain for them they wouldn't have cared i mean they didn't care actually i mean some of them perhaps but as a, a political project that wasn't a concern at all to, to diffuse culture for itself and so i'm interested in how a, a musical object which is the same broadly speaking namely a symphony by Beethoven can be both itself and being transformed by the context of reception and that's a very complicated dynamics because when you have a general ideas about what uh, the meaning of the symphony is perhaps uh, the heroism of Beethoven music is the topos, topos more usually used to describe that that is uh, something that can cut both ways I mean there was a consensus on the fact that individual heroism was a value right that was something which was common to Nazis and to uh, people who fought against them. And so that's a level of the thing. But then heroism for what? Of course, it's definitely not the same if you are claiming your loyalty to Hitler than if you are claiming your loyalty to uh, universalist ideals. And uh, how does it play in the political role of the concept? That's something that is de that depends on understanding the possible emotional and, and uh, behavioral attitudes that the people in the audience are, are, are taking and that's uh, that's a tricky thing because uh, if you don't deconstruct the notion that uh, Beethoven's music has a meaning well you you will find either what you already know was there I mean the propagandistic um, function of uh, those performances or you will dream of something that it's very difficult to ascertain for instance whether the listening to uh, Heroica Symphony would produce an attitude of resistance in the audience, which is what we would like to find, but it's no easy thing to do. I would like to come back uh, to Schrader in a minute, but continue with this question, um, just what you described. Why especially Beethoven? Because our perspective of having hopefully also even a comparison of different countries, at least a, a summary to learn during the same years how different the reception could have been, I still try to understand why Beethoven had such a special place. Having opposites on the ideological agenda, of course, Wagner and Mendelssohn couldn't produce such a 
connecting point for obvious reasons. But Mozart very much was related, I would say, also to the opera, of course. But there was this famous celebration years in the 40s with Mozart, where Goebbels very much tried somehow to control the ideological agenda for Mozart. But with Beethoven, I always try to understand how much of the 19th century still is involved with autonomy aesthetic, especially the, the symphonies as a paradigm of absolute music. And at the same time, this is also just a narrative. Um, it's somehow how the music is presented and it's not the same like what happens there during the concert hall. So maybe I could tempt you for a little bit of speculation as you spend so much time, uh, especially with the Ninth Symphony of the reception. Why, at least does it seem to be that during the National Socialist years, the internal part of Germany, but also the parts of the European countries occupied and the exile. Why was Beethoven such a special point of reference to people who were opposing completely on the political level? Why Beethoven is always the question we are coming back to, right? Um, I would say, why not? Good answer. What I try to understand is, with the examples I've researched so far, that we have the full ideological spectrum from full propaganda to terror and concentration camps and forced migration and exile. And all of those very different people found something in the music that they thought, this belongs to me. This is also part of myself. And to me, at the moment, it's a, it's a riddle, a miracle, an open question, what the music includes that affects people so deeply, especially emotionally. To some, it's the piano music, the piano sonata. So it's not only the symphonies, but I don't know. At the I don't have an answer myself. I just thought maybe you have a point where you would start not to speculate, but where you think there could be points of reference. As you said, it could be a very pathetic, very emotional, very moving thing. But having the same symphony for a resistance meeting and a propagandistic party presentation, it's, it's just strange, so contradictive, but it happened with the same repertoire. I'm remembering a thing Jean and Brigitte Massin uh, wrote in their book in the 50s. Jean and Brigitte Massin authored the uh, the, the standard French biography of Beethoven, which is still nowadays, I mean, more than 50 years after the, the biography most people refer to. When, and they, they said, the problem with Beethoven is that once you have written a statement which sounds like very important, in fact, you have also and simultaneously the feeling of having said something that is like common sense. And so they, they felt there was this loop between great truths becoming so consensual that in fact you can't really elaborate on them without repeating them. But I will take your challenge of uh, uh, your invitation rather at speculation to say, well, that's perhaps a part of a personal experience, of course, but I have the feeling with many works by Beethoven, including the ninth and including I don't know, I'm thinking about the slow movement of the Hammer Klavier sonata as devices to create stasis uh, of time, mm -hmm. a kind of feeling of suspension of the normal, the public uh, f relation to time. I don't know if you would agree with, with that, but that's, and, and I would say in the, 
I don't know, the, the C-sharp minor quartet. And uh, I can think of several emblematic works which in my years, in my listening experience, correspond to a kind of suspension of time. And I think that maybe that's something which is shared by other people. I mean, I'm pretty sure it does because it comes out in the reception. And I think we are in all times, perhaps one of the reasons we turn to music in general is because we need another experience of time uh, going by. I would agree that it has to be something in the music itself and in the performance of the music because it can't be any, anything else with so, in our context, difficult, contradictive political arguments around that. So the core must be somewhere in the music. And of course, it's the joy of, of the performance of so experiencing this in time. I think it's very interesting answer you gave. Coming back to, to Schrader for a minute, I thought, um, as you described that, of course, he not only translated, but modified and readapted his um, perspective on Beethoven, and especially coming back to the question of the Beethoven reception in France. Of course, as we can learn also from, from your research, he had a strong knowledge of, of to put the question difference, how, how much, what did he know and what did he include? Of course, Romain Roland is in the background, Schmitz and Schering is in the background, Schiedermeyer is in the background, not always agreeing with them, but somehow that's the background of his knowledge. How much would you say did he, or do you know if how much he referred to the present, the contemporary situation in 41-42 when he finished and presented this uh, new version how much really did he did he address the situation in Vichy France and in Hitler in the uh, in the Third Reich or was it more like coming from his past of his Beethoven writing well we could say that unfortunately in a way he he did not I mean he stopped in the 30s and uh, that was because, uh, as we mentioned earlier, his research was already finished in a way in 37, even if he then added these allusions to the Dreyfus affair. But basically, his corpus was constituted before, and the decision to stop in 36 was clearly meant to signify up to now, but this now in three or four years changed dramatically. And so now it's, uh, as I said, in a way, it's... Uh, Dommage that he didn't address the, the Vichy scene as well. Even if he did say something about uh, the using of the fifth symphony motif by the BBC as a kind of resistance icon. And that's interesting because you mentioned people uh, like Gilles Meyer and others. I would add to this uh, list uh, Arnold Schmitz the author of um, Beethoven, uh, the, the romantic of Beethoven build. And behind Schmitz, Schmidt, Karl Schmidt, well-known uh, theorist of dictatorship and uh, Nazi enthusiast, by the way, uh, because both Schmidt and Schmitz claimed that Beethoven music, or in the case of Schmidt, it was a general argument about the, the definition of politics, was uh, based on the distinction between friend and foe. And that was and is Schmidt's classical definition of what politics is. And Schmidt's applied it to Beethoven research to say that the romantic image he criticized was the consequence of this uh, Schmittian uh, analysis. And Schrader took that in 1942 to reclaim the fifth for the Allies and against 
the Nazis and he did it in a public speech in, uh, in, in New Haven when he was already at Yale. But this is, uh, to my knowledge, at least the only uh, time in which he did address openly uh, the situation, but without doing research on that. That's, uh, well, I said, unfortunately, earlier, the, the, the good part of it is that there is many, that we, there are many things that we can try to do now to complete in a way, but not without revising the epistemological model of what Schade had in, in mind, because I think, and that's uh, something I would like to discuss with you and uh, our colleagues in, uh, at large, is that the, the notion of a build, an image, as Schmitz first introduced in the discussion and that uh, can be misleading because it means that the image definites the reception. When you have the build in the sense of uh, we are discussing, you have also the emotion that goes with it. And so that's, uh, I think that we have, uh, uh, we need to disconnect what Schade called the image, namely the discourses and the emotional reaction to that. Very interesting point because I also thought that's what I meant with how much did they know and what part of the biography did they relate to on which basis because each author presented a different biographical approach and some refer very much to the biography and others stick more to the music. So what somehow stimulates their image of Beethoven? Is, is it something that I feel it because it's in the music or is it something that's based on literature? I've read here and there and they start to quote something because that all somehow changes and modifies this. Yeah, why not call it built? Uh, because it's it's different than calling it image. And that's something I, I'm very curious to learn during coming years with all the colleagues, how they, that's also the interesting thing with this podcast that my question is rather simple because I raise them with different people coming from different national and academic contexts is because they have just a different perspective and how different those answers are. Because just as you said, it's, connected so many to so many different aspects that I'm just curious to learn what the other answers will be. So we'll see. Well, of course, I'm also looking forward to what the colleagues uh, have to, to say on, on those topics. Uh, but just to, to confirm what you said, I definitely think that it's not either the reception or the yes. music, it's both. And uh, the, since you mentioned my, my book on the night, actually the first part is not about the reception, it's about the production of the work. After that, of course, I'm, I'm following the, the, the historical reception uh, up to recent times. But to complete my answer to the notion of why Beethoven, in the case of the ninth, it was my, my, my feeling was that the whole construction of the symphony is based on what I call a desire for a state. That's how musical structures, starting with the Ode to Joy melody, can be displayed as musical icons for a notion of collectivity. And that's include the notion of musical, of singing together as a way of performing the nation by itself. That's typical of the national anthem genre which is the representation of this collective voice of the nations. And something of that notion, but applied to the brotherhood level, plays into the very architecture of the Ninth Symphony, in my view. And that's something which explains part of the consensual reception while being based on opposite ideological uh, visions of what this utopia can be. 
Yeah, right. Um, you already spoke about, let's say, expectations or what you hope to discuss with the colleagues during the, the upcoming years. Are there other things you expect or hope for? Or because to me, I'm, I don't really have certain expectations because I'm just surprised by the different examples that I keep learning and I keep hearing about and other things. Yeah, certain details come up with certain biographies, for example, of different artists. But are there other things you are looking forward to uh, or you expect or would be surprised? Well, if you expect, you're not surprised. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Michael, how to answer that. I'm looking forward to what the debates will bring us. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, this notion of a transnational team working on different situations. Of course, there is the, the big question of Nazi rule, which is the, 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 the unifying theme of, of the whole project. But still, uh, I think there will, there, there, there will be lots of differentiation in the answers and that's why we do different research in the first place because otherwise uh, we should just multiply the the, the, the idea we have uh, already but I would add maybe once we have a clear picture of what Nazi occupied countries made out of Beethoven at the time there will room also for the silences of that and the silences of ideology and the silences of people who would experience uh, those uh, symphonies or the music of Beethoven in their favorite pieces, playing it themselves in, in a way that, well, we cannot try, trace down through historical archives because they aren't, but that are still part of uh, our task, if I may put it that way. That was a very strong point with also the silence of history and, or of those parts. Thank you so much, Esteban Buch, for being so open, being also curious enough with speculations and uh, for uh, your time. Um, if you're interested in further information about Esteban Buch, please visit his website at the AHES in Paris. If you're interested in further details about our project, you can find all that on musicandresistance.net. And for now, Esteban, thanks so much for discussing with us. Thank you very much, Michael. This podcast was presented by Michael Custodes and his team. Francesco Bruno took care of editing, sound design and production.